This episode could contain profanity. It's up to me, I guess. Your Saturday could contain a gist newsletter. To sign up for it, our once-a-week newsletter, go to slate.com slash gist news. It's Wednesday, June 12th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, and tell me if this has happened to you, No, no, now you're just talking out loud on your commute. Quick, grab a headphone cable and make like it has one of those built-in microphones. Okay, so just listen to what happened. I gotta tell you, it is universal. So, I bought some tickets online. It's a moth show, Matt Dix is gonna be in it, if you must know. The process wasn't hellish, it wasn't infuriating, though it may be, Uh, you just listened to my telling of it. What it was was the perfect amount of not good That makes you wonder if you're a pampered man-baby who can't deal with any of life's friction, or if you're just merely a human on this planet in 2019 with 35,000 things to do who would very much like to pay money into a machine that is hell-bent on retarding that process. It wasn't one thing. It was the perfect e-commerce equivalent of a 17-car pileup on a foggy bend in I-95. So, I go on the site. And to buy tickets, I couldn't just buy tickets. No, you have to register to be a part of this site. And the name of the site is AXS. And I found out afterwards that it's pronounced access. They'd like for me to pronounce it access. I'm not pronouncing it access. Up yours access. And by the way, up yours is spelled U-P-Y-R-S. So axis, A-X-S, which If I had to pronounce it, I'm just going to say A-X-S, but if I had to pronounce it, I'd pronounce it like Axis, the totalitarian powers that opposed America during World War II. So in order to buy a couple tickets to the moth, can't just buy a couple tickets to the moth. I have to give the site my money. I have to register to be part of their site. I have to join their community of ticket buyers. I am being forced to be a member of an Axis nation, which is exactly why my ancestors fled Europe. (laughs) Nah, I'm just kidding. A couple of them didn't make it out. Anyway, when you join, it asks for a password. And I'm going to go easy on this password. I mean, I don't think I have a lot of vulnerable information there. If someone wants to hack the password and figure out what live events I've already bought a ticket to, I mean, I just told you guys I'm going to the moth. I'm pretty okay with that. But when I put in a regular password in English, you know, a password I'll remember, I'll tell you what it is now, sweet and meaty. Nope, it was rejected. It needs one special symbol and one number or capital. Is this really a better level of security? Because the number and special character is almost always a three instead of an E and a dollar sign instead of the S. Haven't we gotten wise to this? So the most normal name is password, but the special character number version is P-A dollar sign dollar sign W-O-R-D. Great. Now we're all like Kesha and Kesha wasn't even safe. So then you get down to the part where there's a drop down menu of your state. It starts with Alabama, statistically improbable. I get it. And then you go to country. They need to know your country. And it starts with Afghanistan. Come on. What are the chances that I am buying tickets to the music hall in Williamsburg for my outpost in Kandahar? Can we just not default to USA? Then there's the part where you put in your credit card number. And it does that thing where the screen, because they know its numbers, gets a little bigger and it starts acting like a calculator, which is nice in the moment, more convenient. 
But in retrospect, I'd rather not have it happened at all because it then goes to zip code and all of a sudden we're back to hunting for the regular non-magnified numbers. You know, plenty of social scientists indicates that it's not abject deprivation that causes distress. It's the perception that you're on a downward trajectory. I mean, how are you going to keep them down on the data entry farm when they've seen the big number interface of Paris? Then, finally, I get to check out. But before I do that, Axis Nation wants me to know, do you want to sign up for a meal kit service? No. Do you want some tailored shirts? No. Do you want a subscription to The Economist? What part of, I would like to see men with beards and ladies with cat eye glasses share funny stories that end in a life lesson? What part of that says, oh yes, and also, could you deliver printed material about Brexit to my mailbox once a week? Also, of course, I subscribe to The Economist already. Up yours, Axis. So finally, I decline all their short-sighted entreaties. Really, because if you're a website about live events, why would you want to push compelling reading material on the customer? It will just serve to keep him in the house. So I buy the tickets, which aren't any extra because I go for the e-ticket, and that doesn't cost any more money. And still, I see there is something called a convenience charge, $4. No, convenience would be no charge. Is it truly convenient? If it was truly convenient, it wouldn't have a charge. What is the convenience? I'm trying to discern what is the convenience they mean. And I think they mean just using this website. The very process of engaging in a transaction is to them a convenience. As if when I got to the front of the line at the Gap and they said, okay, the clothes are $45, plus we're going to charge you four bucks to use the cash register to pay for them. Convenience charge. I guess that gets less complaints that when they debuted the line item, which said, oh yeah, we'd just like to charge you four bucks because we can. So the site takes my credit card. Apparently my non-Afghani locale checks out and I have the tickets. And then there's a pop-up item. Would you recommend AXS to a friend? I mean, if you needed a meal kit in Afghanistan, I might. What? Recommend? How does the concept of recommending come into anything that went on? There was no choice involved in anything I did. This is the only way to get a ticket to this venue. I would recommend it as much as it's preferable to not going to see the moth. Where, how is this a thing that recommend could apply to? You want to leave Manhattan? Would you recommend crossing a river in some way? There's no choice. It's 1941. You have a raging case of syphilis. Would you recommend penicillin? No? Okay. How about The Economist? I told them this, I told the website this in their comment box. I excoriated them for even thinking that anyone would recommend the AXS site, let alone recommend it to anyone who they once considered to be a friend. I gotta say, AXS hasn't gotten back to me yet, but I guess it does take email a little while to get to Afghanistan. On the show today, I spiel about the Democratic candidate's desires to lock him up, but first... John Urschel is a former offensive lineman for the Baltimore Ravens. He is now pursuing an advanced degree in mathematics from MIT. His wife, Louisa Thomas, is a sports journalist now pursuing a life with a former offensive lineman who is studying math at MIT. They're married and co-authors of the book, Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football.
So finally on the gist, there comes a time when I get to talk about a topic that I've just been fascinated with for a long time, but I haven't had the right guest. Yes, it's time to talk about centroidal Voronoi tessellations. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm lying. But John Urschel, my guest, his eyes lit up a little bit because that's what he's studying at MIT. He is a former NFL player who now is a top mathematician. I'm going to say top. I mean, I'm looking at the cover of his book and there's a lot of impressive looking uh, uh, formulas. So that, that says top to me. And he's out with a new book with his wife, Louisa Thomas. It's na- the name of the book is Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football. And Louisa uh, wrote a chapter for my book upon further review. And she has been on the gist before and is one of my favorite writers. And I want to talk about the contents of the book and the project of writing it together. Thank you guys for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right. So you probably, you say in the book, John, that you got, I don't know if the word is annoyed, you understand why people would ask it, but uh, the people who are interested in you while you were playing football, the fact that you had this math sideline, they always tried to make a connection that wasn't there, which is, I guess, we can expect it out of human beings, but was it just a strained analogy they were trying to make? Or why do you think people grasp so hard to try to analogize math with football? Well, I... uh I don't know. I feel like this is sort of human nature. You mm-hmm. always want to make connections yes. out of things that aren't there. I mean, this is actually human nature. And I have to admit that, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that I have gone on interviews and I've said, you know, yeah, math uh, math helps me learn the playbook or like what I tell people what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. But like really what connects the two of these things is that they're two things that I really love. Yeah. They're two things that I did at a high level. And I've come to realize that when you try to be really, really good at something, the characteristics that lead you to that, no matter what the field, are the same. So an unreasonable love for what you're doing, a sort of drive to succeed, and sort of a resiliency in the face of a lot of adversity and a lot of setbacks. And of course, you need some talent. But these are the things that sort of make you good at something. And so I find that that's what sort of being good at two things almost always has in common. So in writing the book, what you guys had to do was decide how to present the math parts, how to present the football parts. And since you say early on what you just said, John, they're separate. You just separated them. You just alternated. It was pretty cool. It was very easy to understand. Yeah, it was actually, um, it was very funny because writers are... Very prone to making uh, connections between between different things. I mean, that's what a, a metaphor is. I yes. mean, that's sort of like one of the main tools of the trade. Um, and in the first draft, I will admit, you're reading the final version, not the first version. And in the first draft, we tried to integrate it a lot more. And um, it didn't really work, actually, because it wasn't true. John really did have a kind of football life and a math life. And what connected them was 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 him. Um, and so in the end, we were like, well, why don't we just do the math and do the football and do the math and do the football? And uh, hopefully if the voice is true and the person behind it is real, then those things will cohere. But yeah. um, we shouldn't try and force it both. Yeah. I have read studies, though, that certain positions in football correlate to certain personalities. Do you think offensive linemen, is it not true that offensive linemen are perhaps slightly more sensible than, let me name a couple other position 
like defensive linemen, defensive ends, blitzing linebackers. I find that offensive linemen are a little bit more sensible. I think we're a little more sensible too. And I think it might have something to do with, I think offensive line as a position more than a lot of other positions like defensive tackle require a lot of hard work, Mm -hmm. a lot of practice, a lot of honing your technique. A lot of the techniques you use as an offensive lineman are sort of unnatural in a way. Yeah. And so I think the characteristics that lead you to succeed as an offensive lineman, having to work with other people, your sort of success on the field, being intimately tied to the people playing next to you, I think that sort of suits people with certain characteristics better. But there was there's another thing. Okay, so this is this is actually not math and football, but it's personality. You just mentioned that maybe one reason offensive linemen are the way they are in general is that they have to be cohesive and work with a group. Mm-hmm. You write about strategizing becoming a part of the group. You were an outsider type kid and then you make the, you made this conscious intellectual choice mm-hmm. to become part of a group. Yes. So there to me that says a little bit of an intellectual choice, uh, something that most people would either go about emotionally or naturally without even thinking about it. You made an intellectual choice that in some way comports with uh, the at least the position you played in football. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, uh, I th- like to think the majority of my choices at least should be intellectually. Well, driven. most people, but no, I mean, like you even say in the book that you're, you, you were what, made to lick a tree when you were in elementary school. That's true. And you knew you were, would we say nerdy, the kid, were you a nerdy kid is why you were an outsider? You were just into your own thing. Well, I was fat as well. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. So I was fat, I was nerdy, I mean... But yeah, there were a number of reasons, and I did get bullied, and yes, this was somewhat scarring for me as a young person, and I sort of decided, you know what? How do I fix this? What are all the other kids doing? Let me do what the cool kids are doing, and I will be fine, and what do you know? I started doing what they were doing. I started playing lacrosse. I started doing street hockey, and all of a sudden, I was fine. Yeah. And this is uh, the sentence in the book is, I think, conformity is a beautiful thing. It's true. Okay. Not, so first of all, <laughs> yeah. I should say, I want to qualify this. This is not necessarily what I'm recommending as the solution to, let's say, the no. you know, problem of bullying in schools. But Your kid comes to you with the problem. You wouldn't say you need to conform. Find yes, out what they're no, into. No, no. Do that. No, this yeah. is not the advice I'm giving kids around the country, but yeah. I wanted to stop getting bullied. Yeah. This was my solution. Who wrote, who came up with the sentence, that sentence itself? Oh, that's my sentence. Yeah. That's your yes, sentence. that is my sentence. What do you think, Louisa, what do you think when he said that sentence? Oh, he actually said it to me uh, like years before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I, I say this anytime I talk about like this time in my life. No, this is this is something I say. It was um, a memorable sentence yeah. and he said it early on and I was uh, ready to deploy it at the right yeah. moment. Yeah. In fact, there's a, there's a poster that I always think of. I don't know if you've seen this poster. It's a poster, and it's a bunch of penguins. Yeah. And it says, conformity on the top. The odd one out gets left in the cold. It just shows like a penguin by itself. And like this is uh, this is what I think of. This yeah. is what I think of when I think of my my younger self. But to the world of penguins reading that poster, they'd be like, "I don't understand. They're all distinct. I can totally tell them <laughs> apart. <laughs> it doesn't scan in the penguin world." If you had to reform both of your fields in a way that you think is doable, so I'm not going to have you reinvent the game of football. But what would some of your some of the ways that football can be improved and math can be improved? 
And you can take this wherever you want, like how math is being taught, how the the sixth grader learns math, what's yes, the methods I would, at the college level. I would, would focus on how math is being taught. Yeah. I would, uh, well, okay, suppose you're a young person and you're in a math classroom. I want you to know what people use mathematics for in our world at a high level. I would love every single math classroom to say, have a poster of famous mathematicians to have a poster of showing elite computer scientists who, of course, are using high-level math, uh, show posters of very successful people in finance, show sort of all the different careers that a mathematician sort of can pursue and all the sort of fields that really use math at a very, very high level. That would be good. And what about your football reforms? Oh, football's good the way it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no problems. <laughs> yeah. When you know who I identified with and I thought made the correct calls during the book is your mom when she wanted you to go to Stanford. It's mm-hmm. a good football team. Like you could play football at Stanford and also get a, an advanced degree. And then after the Paterno scandal, mm-hmm. sorry, I should call it the Sandusky scandal, Paterno steps down, you have a chance to go to Stanford. If I was her, I'd have made the same advice. But as you explain it in your book, I uh, totally get in respect why you stayed. The team, the brotherhood, yeah. the bond between your teammates. Absolutely. I mean, when I look back on my career as a football player, my years at Penn State were my absolute favorite years of football playing for the university that's given me so much, wearing that jersey, representing my school, going out on Saturdays in front of 106,000 fans with my best friends in the world. Like the guys next to me, you know, I was playing right guard. My center, he was my best man. My right tackle, may he rest in peace, was one of my best friends. Mm. And I have to say that there's just something amazing about being so close where we did everything together. Like, you know, we go to practice together, we watch film together, we eat together, we hang out together, we go out on the weekends together. It's uh, like it's a closeness that you're not going to find in many other places. I don't know where else. Does it make you jealous given what we do? There's no camaraderie <laughs> like that in journalism. It's true. A, a writing is a, a little bit lonely. Um John will tell you that sometimes he would go to football practice and he'd be exhausted when he came home. And I'd have been at home writing all day. And he would come in, and I'd be like, "Bye bye! Can't wait to talk to a human being." And yeah, he'd be like, yeah. "Whoa, let <laughs> yeah, me yeah. relax." It was a, like it's a because you know I'm playing pro football, and you know it's a full time job. Okay, it's not like okay. First of all, pro football sort of environment was way different than what I had at Penn State. Even I've come to learn most college football environments were very different than what I had at Penn State. Oh, really? Because yeah. I think most college environments sell you on the idea that it's like yeah. the brotherhood of Penn but State. But I think it's not. Huh. I think it's not. Like, I've talked to sort of teammates of mine in the league, and when I t- tell them, like, what my college experience was like, and they tell me what their college experience was like, we were so much closer at Penn State than it seems like uh, at other places. And, and not because necessarily you went through it, the scandal that you went through? I uh, I think that has something to do with it. I think another thing that has to do with it is, okay, I mean, okay, this is going to sound ridiculous, but uh, I think Penn State legitimately recruited good guys. Yeah. Like, we always had a, one of the highest graduation rates in the country, often like one, two, or three. Graduating was important. Academics were important. Being a good young man, growing up to be a good man, like this, this was an important thing that was really talked about. What you did outside of football mattered. How you carried yourself 
this was really important. And I have to say, like, when I look at, you know, the teammates I had at Penn State, okay, every team has one or two bad apples. But by and large, this is just a group full of great guys who love football, who, you know, are just so happy to be a part of Penn State football. Whereas I talk to some of my, like, teammates in the league, and they tell me, like, their teams were sort of kind of, like, there were some good guys on their team that they liked, yeah. but a lot of trash yeah. is you know the way it was described to me. And Dude, I would say we had none of that at Penn State. I just, I think that a case can be made, but you tell me you've gotten more elite in this field, math, mm-hmm. than you were in, in the NFL and football. And yet it does seem that you got so much attention for being in the NFL and comparatively less attention. I mean, the fact that you were able to do both, but mm-hmm. look at a top mathematician and the attention paid to him by society. Look mm-hmm. at a top NFL player and it's a gigantic disparity. I will definitely say that I think I have much more natural talent in mathematics and football. Mm-hmm. I already had to work really, really hard to get where I sort of got to in football. It took a lot of work. Was there a piece of uh, journalism about John that you thought, because as detailed in the book, much of it is cliche and much of it is just hitting the notes that you know are very easy to hit. Was there ever the a really good or the definitive piece about John before this, do you think? Before the book? Um, yeah. Well, there was recently a profile by Jordan Ellenberg, who's a mathematician sure. that I quite liked. See, that's interesting because Ellenberg's a math writer. Yeah. I mean, he's a writer-writer, but he's a mathematician. Yeah. He loves sports. Yeah. He's been on the show a bunch. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that it took the math guy, not the sports guy, to get it. Maybe. I mean, I think that sports writing can be really hard. I mean, it's hard for me a lot of times. You get limited access. And I think a lot of athletes are both trained to speak in cliches and also punished if they don't often. Like it never hurt you when you gave those fake answers about how math helps you on the field. No, absolutely not. (laughs) I mean, uh, you know, if I have some interviews lined up that I have to do, why, why would I have any interest in sort of like going into something more complicated Mm -hmm. than it needs to be? It's also true that I think a lot of athletes or some great athletes really believe what they're saying. And it sounds cliched and silly and, yeah. and unbelievable yeah. um, to a journalist or on the page. It looks very flat and, and silly often. Yeah. But um, when you're actually speaking to them, often it's, especially if they're a little bit charismatic, like you actually become a, it's like talking to a true believer. I mean, there's yeah. almost something um, religious about the faith and confidence that a lot of athletes have, which I think is really integral to their success. So sometimes what seems like a cliche factory is actually much more important and and tied to their performance than you might otherwise assume. And then it's important for you to rely on something other than their quote to explain them to the reader. Yeah. Derek Jeter was always like that. He's not introspective, but him not being introspective, see ball, hit ball is exactly what makes him Derek or one of the huge parts that makes him Derek Jeter. Yeah. 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 So that's one of the, one of the big challenges. Yeah. Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football by John Urschel and Louisa Thomas. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And now the spiel. Today, a podcast released by NPR quoted Senator Kamala Harris as saying that if elected, her Department of Justice would pursue criminal charges against Donald Trump. When asked if she would do this, she said, quote, I believe they would have no choice and that they should. Yes, she continued. There has to be accountability. I mean, look, people might, you know, question why I became a prosecutor. Well, I'll tell you, one of the reasons I I believe there should be accountability. Everyone should be held accountable. And the president is not above the law. Even if it meant a former president going on trial, serving jail time? Well, the, the facts and the evidence will take the process where it leads. Benjamin Wittes of Lawfare wrote about this, a presidential candidate declaring the current president as guilty of crimes. He says, I'll quote, saying that as president, you would supervise that person's prosecution, as Harris did, is poisonous stuff in a democracy that cares about apolitical law enforcement. It's poisonous to a society that believes in a presumption of innocence. It's poisonous to a society that believes in limiting the relationship between political actors, including the president, and the deployment of the coercive powers of the state against individuals. A presidential candidate's promising a law enforcement outcome against an individual should be unacceptable even to those who fervently wish to see Trump in the defendant's chair in federal court. Well, poisonous is strong. Maybe anti-venom is the better analogy because anti-venom is strong too. And it can have serious side effects. It's made from the same toxic substance that it's trying to cure. Also, the president has certainly injected venom into politics. And we've been mainlining poison as a result. We're inclined to reach for the anti-venom. But I do agree with Wittes that current candidates should be much, much more careful than they have been. Of course, being careful doesn't get you elected. In fact, when a candidate loses, the number one complaint is usually, oh, played it too safe. I mean, sometimes it's that the candidates say the words legitimate rape or declares themselves to be a witch or wears a dopey helmet in a tank, but often it's because of playing it safe. So what's a politician to do? Which is exactly where Wittes' essay took him. Quote, the hard question is not whether Harris gave a bad answer to NPR's question. She did. The hard question is what answer she should have given and how other candidates should handle similar questions in the future if they want to honor the norms of apolitical law enforcement. So Wittes answers that here's what she should have said, and he takes the exact question Harris was asked and he parses it for its many subtleties and implications. That answer would be thorough, complete, norm-enforcing. Or if you just want a shorthand, he could have gone with, She should have said something like what Senator Amy Klobuchar did say when asked about not just prosecuting an unimpeached Trump, but the very question of impeachment itself. She was asked by CNN's Chris Cuomo. Senator, just to give him a quick sense, do you believe that anything you've read and processed in that report could have the word impeachable attached to it? Any, first of all, I believe I'm the jury here, so I'm not going to predispose things. I'm not going to say it is or it isn't. But what I will say is there's very disturbing things that would lead you to believe there's obstruction of justice. 
You can make the case that Klobuchar is playing politics as much as Harris is. And maybe that amount might be not at all. Or maybe it might be they're both saying what they're saying because it is their true belief that their stances are correct. Or maybe it's they're both saying what they're saying because they're being coldly cynical in their calculations and they're being mindful of what their brands are. Harris being aggressive, Klobuchar believing she's the sensible centrist. One candidate could be acting purely. One candidate could be acting cynically. They could either be acting at any place on the scale in between. It doesn't really matter because I think that Klobuchar is emphasizing a correct point that as a member of the jury, she needs to at least publicly distance herself from having formed a firm conclusion. You can say that impeachment or an indictment certainly seems justified, but I would like to see all the evidence. That's what a senator and candidate should say, which, by the way, is what an impeachment would bring about a lot more evidence. And I am a little disturbed that the full throated calls for impeachment and conviction from the several jury members who are running for president, like Gillibrand and Warren and Booker, they're coming without caveats. The appeal of this full throatedness is understandable, and I don't know if it's poisonous but it's not proper and it's clearly not popular propriety isn't popular propriety sounds like oh, all tied up with etiquette it connotes fussiness i don't mean it that way i mean it in terms of just this doing the right thing maybe not the righteous thing but the right thing and doing something that's proper doesn't have to be explicitly guided by moral conviction rightness is more defined by ethical considerations. Now, ethics and morals are related, but they're not the same. Here's an example. A merchant could be acting perfectly ethically when he wants to thank the cop on the beat by saying, oh, you're such a, you're such a good cop. You patrol the neighborhood and I want to show my thanks. And also, you know, you're out here all hours of the day, have a cup of coffee, have an apple. But you know what? The cop would be acting unethically if he were to accept it. Neither one is acting immorally calling for the maximum prosecution of a seemingly criminal president just might be a moral act, but it is not necessarily the proper one because you have to think of the greater consequences. Or you don't. I'm sure what every individual candidate is thinking, I'm going to ride my passion to the nomination. I'll probably get the lock him up chant at a rally, and then I'll do the no, 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 that's not who we are, higher ground thing, and then I'll try to win the election. And if such a candidate does win the election, it will certainly feel like a big corrective to this current time of true immoral and unethical behavior, which is why it's nice to have podcasters and Lawfare's editor-in-chief out there to remind you what's right. Please vote accordingly. And that's it for today's show. Hey, we have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at slate.com slash just news. We give you a roundup of everything we talk about. Also, the answer to a trivia question. Here is this week's trivia question. It's math and football. Let's say the Miami Dolphins were real dolphins, and the owners of the dolphins wanted to turn their football field into a tank, a dolphinarium. The minimum height of a dolphinarium is six feet. Activists say that's too short, but the owners are going to build it at six feet. And they will have the length and width of this dolphinarium exactly trace the sidelines of an NFL field. Everything in bounds in an NFL field would be inside this tank. What would the volume, when filled with water, what would the volume, or even not, what would the volume of that dolphinarium be? Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. 
They both played semi-professional high lie, and now they're pursuing their cosmetology degrees from Downstate Tech. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She used to grab big air on the Red Bull kiteboarding circuit. Now she's looking to become a licensed phlebotomist. The gist. Once a triple jumper, now studying deformities of the larynx. He'd still like to be an ENT MVP. Umpru de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.